Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, and then we'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for New Testament reading. And then the catechism questions and answers from Lord's Day 6, page 13, the back of our blue hymnal. We'll read those answers together. Isaiah chapter 53, let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. Prophet Isaiah, what many people would say is the pinnacle chapter In Isaiah and the servant songs picturing the Messiah, centuries before Jesus came to this earth, this is what Isaiah says under the inspiration of the Spirit. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed. For our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. As far as the reading of God's holy word. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23 through the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 23. Let's hear the Apostle Paul. Speaking of the one who came as the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23. But we, 
Preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Grass withers, flower fades. God's word endures forever. And then our lesson for tonight, Lord's Day 6. If you would turn there, let's read the answers together. Jesus Christ, God and man, and truly righteous, a perfect Savior. Questions 16 through 19. Speaking of our Savior, why must he be truly human and truly righteous? God's justice demands it. Man has sinned. Man must pay for his sin. But a sinner cannot pay for others. Why must he also be true God? So that, by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. And who is this mediator? True God and at the same time truly human and truly righteous. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who was given us to set us completely free and to make us right with God. How do you come to know this? The Holy Gospel tells me. God himself began to reveal the Gospel already in paradise. Later, he proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and prophets and portrayed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, he fulfilled it through his own dear son. I was listening to a lecture this week on the rise of atheism and uh, what people have termed the the new atheists, those uh, like Richard Dawkins and the late Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, these figures. And it's it's truly a phenomenon in our world that is in many ways peculiar to, to our world. The fact that we can have such a large representation of people who follow the writings of these men is in itself something worth considering that we live in a world that is in some way conducive to uh, people to hold on to the conviction that there is no God, that there's, there's no divine or supreme being. Really a pretty amazing thing if you think about it, uh, that our world even has people 
who believe that way because it, history shows us that generally human beings have not largely believed in such a thing or such an idea as atheism. Uh, Al Mohler, who was giving this lecture I was listening to, was speaking of a lecture that he was, uh, he was sitting under, uh, the Dutch historian and theologian Heiko Obermann. And he said that there was something said in this lecture that struck him so that it stayed with him forever. The thought has really never left him. And this great historian of the late medieval and early Reformation period said this. He was in the lecture and he said, you all are not understanding what I'm saying to you. That's always kind of a stark thing to hear a professor say. You're not understanding what I am saying to you. He was speaking of Martin Luther. And he said this, Martin Luther and everyone in his world woke up every day with an intense fear of death, thinking that this would be the last day of life on earth. That's the way people thought in the late medieval and early Reformation periods. And they all, he said, went to bed each night with the fear that they would wake up in either heaven or hell. That was the kind of life that they lived. They lived that each and every day with that fear. They went to bed each and every night with that fear. Actually, might uh, say something about those words that we sang tonight, son of my soul. Uh, th those kinds of lullabies that God's people would sing before they went to bed. Uh, Forgive me, Lord, for thy dear son, the ills that I this day have done, that with the world myself and thee I err, I sleep at peace may be. That's where that comes from, that late medieval mindset, the early Reformation mindset. That approach seems irrational to us. It seems irrational to me. Why would they live with such fear? Why would they have such fear going to bed each night? But they would look at us and our society and think that we are irrational. We have an entire medical system that is wonderful in many ways. We're able to fend off death. We're able to increase both the span of our lives and the quality of our lives to a great extent. But we are still just as mortal, aren't we? Death still indeed comes at unexpected times. And I say all of this because the Heidelberg Catechism is, uh, you know, you always want to study something in its place in history. And... When the Catechism was written, it is not too far removed from that late medieval and certainly early Reformation period. That that is the way that a lot of folks would have been thinking day to day in their life. And I say that because when you go through particularly this, the, the, these first several days uh, of the divisions of the Catechism, there's this kind of roller coaster that we tend to miss. The anguish of the debt and the, the glory of the Savior. And unless you understand that, that these are people who would have lived with the intensity, the, the, the kind of realities that they face day to day, and waking up, and many of them would have had that intense fear of it being their last day, or many would have gone to sleep not knowing uh, whether or not they would wake up. It's good for us to remember that and to think about how often we forget about those things just because uh, our life and our world is so much more advanced doesn't mean that we shouldn't sometimes think that way. It, I believe, is in some sense a lesson for us that 
when we fail to, to think about those things, the gospel does not hit us in a way that makes us truly joyful. And the sinfulness that is shown to us in the law of God does not hit us in a way that makes us truly sorrowful. When you see how high the stakes really are, perhaps we'll feel and believe differently. So the main point tonight is that God's word shows us that the exact way that God accomplished redemption was absolutely necessary. Thus, we joyfully, keyword joyfully, we joyfully take hold of Christ by faith in the gospel. The way that God brought everything together was absolutely necessary. The exact way that he accomplished salvation. Thus, we joyfully take hold of Christ in the gospel. You look at the questions of this Lord's Day, and you see that it is true that in some ways we're hitting on the same exact themes from last week's lesson, Lord's Day 5. We're still talking about someone who must be truly human and truly righteous and truly divine, but it states it positively, not negatively. Today's Lord's Day states positively what last week's states negatively, and that's to highlight that what God does is exactly what we need. It uh, shows us that the incarnation of Jesus Christ is something that is absolutely necessary and that it's the only possible way that we can be saved. That's really what it's driving home for us. Do you know and understand that only in Christ can you be saved? Psalm 49 says, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. That's what really why we have these four questions and answers to impress upon us the necessity of Jesus Christ, the thankfulness and the joy that we are to have because of our Savior. It shows us the danger of having a bad Christology, if I may use a, a big word, Right? The, the doctrine that we hold about Jesus Christ is, is so important, and it has been that way since the beginning of the church. If you go through the first few centuries of the church, all of the big controversies mostly were about uh, how do we talk about Jesus Christ being divine and human? And uh, what this Lord's Day and the previous Lord's Day showed to us is that you have to get that exactly right. You have to get a bullseye on how you talk about and believe in Jesus Christ in terms of who he is, God and man. Many errors have been suggested throughout the history of the church. Jesus, perhaps he only seemed to be a man. Perhaps he just had the appearance of a man. He wasn't truly a man. though. Perhaps Jesus was a God, but not the God. Perhaps the... Uh, two natures of Jesus are fused into one kind of synthetic super creature. Perhaps the two natures are separated in a way that almost makes two persons. There's the, the human person of Jesus and there's the, the, the God, divine person. All of these errors, even though it may seem like they're subtle differences to us, are very, very serious. We must hold that in the one person of Christ... The two natures exist or subsist without change, without mixture, right? They don't mix together. Without division, their natures remain true. Without separation, they're not separated. If you deny any of those things explicitly, 
you deny all possibility of salvation. And that's what's being pressed upon us. He must be true man. He must be true God. And those two natures exist in one person. Why? Well, we see in Scripture that one who is God and man allows for sin to be born and for blessing to be imparted. Human sin is committed in and through human nature, through the human mind, through the human soul, and the will, and the heart, through the human body, the eyes, and ears, and mouth, and hands, and feet. That is where sin has come from. And thus the Savior must have all of those things truly if he is to bear sin in his human nature. It's also true that our Savior can only impart resurrection life if he is organically related to us in that way. As a a representative type of figure, Jesus Christ, the federal head of all of the elect, and he wins resurrection life in and through his human nature, that's why he can impart it. If he's not a true man, then that can't actually be given to us. And that's exactly what we see in Isaiah 53, isn't it? We don't have time to to exegete the entire chapter, and certainly it is a glorious chapter of Scripture. But it shows for us, without question, that the Christ, the Messiah, is a substitute figure who bears the sins of others, right? There is no question about that. In Isaiah 53, he's bearing the sin of others. He's not suffering for his own sin. Isaiah 53, verse 4. He took up our infirmities, and he carried our sorrows. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. You see that exchange going back and forth. Healing to us, sin and chastisement and punishment on the Messiah. We all, like sheep, have gone astray Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Just like a a sheep with the sins placed upon him by the hands of a priest. Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Spirit, carefully portrays the imputation of sin without the pollution of sin. It's amazing how precise the categories are operating in Isaiah chapter 53. It also shows that, now here's where you start to see a little bit of the whispers. When you talk about the death of the Messiah and the resurrection of the Messiah. There's still a a, a veiled view of that because it's through the eyes of the prophet. But we do see that it does seem to say that this Messiah will go all the way to death as he's bearing sin. Did you hear that in verse 8? By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? In other words before he has the opportunity to create a line, a legacy on earth, his life is taken away. For he was cut off from the land of the living. Some way he dies, right? For the transgression of my people he was stricken. Verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked. He himself is not wicked. He's assigned a grave with the wicked. And with the rich in his death, Though he had done no violence, nor was deceit found in his mouth. So there, it's again, it's given to us through the eyes uh, and the mouth of the prophet. But it does seem to say that the Savior goes to death while bearing sin. That is why he must be true man. 
to bear sin, to go all the way to death. And then question 17 speaks of the divinity, the godhood of the servant, of the Messiah. And and what we see there is that God does himself what man cannot do. God does himself what man cannot do. We cannot redeem ourselves, cannot get ourselves out of our sin. We cannot get rid of the wrath of God upon us because of our sin. So what does God do? He bears his own wrath in his son to create redemption for us. This idea of the the godhood, the divinity of uh, the servant, it's pictured for us in a couple of interesting ways in Isaiah chapter 53. The first is this, is that it shows us that the Messiah will see the blessing of life after the grave. He will overcome it. Look at what it says in verse 11. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. He will make, he will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Isaiah 53 also speaks of, in a couple of mysterious and interesting ways, it alludes to the fact that the Messiah and God himself have terms of an agreement. In the Bible, we would call that a covenant. And we would say that Isaiah 53 is speaking of the eternal covenant between God the Father and God the Son to accomplish redemption. I'll show you what I mean. In verses 10 and 12, It says this, It was uh, the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. In other words, the prophet is saying, it is God's will that all of this should happen. And then all of a sudden you have this introduction of the offspring. Now, where does that come from? We've already seen he's cut off from the land of the living. Who can speak of his descendants? Now, all of a sudden, it says he is going to be assigned an offspring, a a seed, a people that are going to be his. What we see at the end of Isaiah 53 is that it is part of the reward that he receives for obeying the will of God. Therefore, verse 12, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death. There will be spoils, there will be reward. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, he will see the light of life after the grave. All of this bears witness to the mystery of the God-man. It tells us exactly what we need to know about Christ, that he bears sin as man. He gives blessing and imparts blessing as man, but he wins that through the power of his divinity that he's able to carry it through. He does not bear sin in his divine nature. He does not die according to his divine nature, but the fact that he is both divine and human, that is what makes salvation possible. Jesus had to be God and man. One theologian puts it this way, there must be divine power to bear to the end and to bear away, to bear and live through the divine wrath. So the mediator we need must be very God. And there must be a very intimate relation, a close union between the divine and the human nature of this mediator. For although 
the mere human nature could never sustain the wrath of God and live. That's the key point. It, it could, he, if it were a mere human, it could never sustain the wrath of God and live. Yet, it must be in that human nature that the wrath of God must be born. To wash away sin. Man is sin. Man must pay for sin. The divine nature could not be the object of the divine wrath. Nor can the divine nature suffer and die. The relation between the real manhood and true Godhead of this mediator must be such that in the human nature, the divine nature sustains the infinite wrath of God, that God bears the punishment for sin in the human nature. He must therefore not only be real man and very God, but be man and God in one person. Now that's a long, drawn-out quotation I read, but it's in order to make us see just how exactly perfectly God accomplishes our salvation in Jesus Christ. And it's to, to, to highlight the mystery of it all, isn't it? It's, it's true that no matter how much we know of this, there's always going to be mystery attached to it. And that's okay. We know Christ truly. We don't know him fully. We know him truly. So we cling to what has been revealed as true. That's why in the, the remaining two questions of the catechism to tonight's uh, lesson, there is this emphasis of joy. The, the, this emphasis of joy that it's, it's in our Lord Jesus Christ that we find these things. That it's in the Holy Gospel that we hear of these things. Certainly that is what we see in the next question. It leads us finally to be able to profess the name of, of Jesus Christ. Who is this mediator? God and man. It is our Lord, Jesus Christ. The gospel, Machen says, in the gospel there is included all that the heart of man can wish. All you could ever wish for, the gospel has it. Chapter 4 of Acts, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. The name of Jesus Christ has such meaning for us because of what it is that we believe about the person of Jesus Christ. We treasure the name and it rings in our ear. And we love to hear the name Jesus Christ because we know there we are confessing a Savior who is true man and true God. In the gospel, we are given Christ himself, not just blessings through Christ. We receive him. Christ himself is the fullness of salvation, one theologian says. It is himself we receive. Himself he imparts to us through faith by his Spirit. We do not receive him piecemeal. We do not receive the blessings of salvation one by one until gradually we have appropriated Christ and all of his benefits. We receive him. First Corinthians highlights this for us too. It does such a wonderful job not only saying that uh, God is wise in the execution of his redemptive plan, but in Christ you have the fullness of salvation. He becomes to us, what? Wisdom from God. And righteousness, righteousness, that exact thing that we needed but we could not produce. Wisdom from God. Look at the sweep of redemptive history. Genesis 3.15, I will give you a, a seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And that ends in Jesus of Nazareth, the one we read in the Gospel of John. And the one we hear about in the proclamation of the Gospel week to week. You look at that and you say, God is wise. 
God is wise, isn't he? In Christ you have righteousness, that exact thing that you could not produce on your own. Paul says, everything else in the world that count as loss, to know Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I count, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. In Christ, we have holiness there. It's it's more of a a sanctification, a purity, that in Him you have this positional righteousness before God. You've been washed clean. And being washed clean before God, that positional sanctification gives it, it, it flows into a progressive sanctification. The Bible says, consider who you are before God. And let that move you to work in a way that is in accord with it. Hebrews 10 verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, let us serve God. Let us draw near to him. Why? Because you've been sprinkled clean. In Christ we also have redemption. That occurs last there in verse 30 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 because it has the emphasis that that here in Christ, what do you have? Redemption, that idea that the transaction has occurred, that everything that needs to be paid has been paid in him. A lot of temple imagery attached to that, uh, that term redemption. It shows up a lot in the book of Hebrews. Everything that was needed Christ has done. So it says in Hebrews 9, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. What we see is that Christ is our all. That's what 1 Corinthians 1 says. Wisdom from God. He is righteousness. He is holiness. He is redemption. Christ is our all. Samuel Rutherford says, the more that you love Christ, the more you can take him to yourself. The more you love him, the more you can enjoy him and take him to yourself. He says this, Christ, all the seasons of the year, is dropping sweetness. If I had vessels, I might fill them, but my old split, cracked, and running out dish, even when I am at the well, can bring little away. He's saying, I'm not sanctified enough to take all of Christ that he will give to me. But if I love him just a little bit more, I can fill my cup just a little bit more. And I can enjoy him and love him and take more of him to myself. You get this love through the Holy Gospel. Is it any wonder why the Gospel is our spiritual food? Is it any wonder why those who first received this catechism, their hearts would have sang when they heard uh, these last two questions and answers? Who is that mediator? The Lord Jesus Christ, he saves you from death and sin and hell. Where do you hear this? The Holy Gospel, that message that you receive, the goodness of God, where he gives you redemption in Jesus Christ. So, take more and more of Christ to yourself. Love him more, and you can take more of him to yourself. Enjoy him and glorify him all of your days. When you have Christ, you have all that you need. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this day that you give to us. We pray that you will sanctify us through this word, build us up, and send us out, that we may glorify you. We thank you for this message. 
that in Christ, in Christ, we have all that we need, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. We give you all the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.